This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, uh, we are in a period uh, of anniversaries and remembering in this country. It's 100 years uh, since the Irish Civil War, for example. And from 2016 onwards, we have been remembering our past, our revolution, uh, and indeed um, wondering about so many things. Uh, For example, how did we get the country we live in today? Um, And a wonderful new book, by Dermot Ferreter is called Between Two Hells, uh, the Irish Civil War. Uh, Dermot, of course, Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD and a columnist, a regular columnist with uh, the Irish Times every Friday. And he's written what I found to be a riveting new book about uh, the Civil War and its aftermath. Uh, Dermot, thank you very much for joining us. And just to make the point about how contentious our history is, in the recent weeks we've had this controversy about uh, Michael D. Higgins, president, refusing to go to a commemoration, a church commemoration of the establishment of the border. In the end, our Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Simon Coveney, went along with the chief whip uh, uh, for some reason. But there is no agreed narrative quite yet, uh, it seems. But I want to ask about um, your book. As I say, it's riveting, and some of the detail is shocking. Um, One thing that struck me, and it's not new because it's been well known, uh, journalist Michael Mills of the Irish Press in 1969, he asked Sean Lamass, who was an anti-treaty IRA man uh, and later, of course, uh, Taoiseach and a very, very uh, good Taoiseach. He asked uh, Sean Lamass about the Civil War. Lamass's brother, Noel, had suffered a terrible uh, killing, murder. Uh, And um, you point out in your introduction to the book uh, that uh, uncharacteristically, um, Sean Lamass welled up with tears and said, terrible things were done by both sides. I'd prefer not to talk about it. 
And when one reads the detail, you can understand uh, the depth of feeling. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about is uh, the Four Courts attack by uh, the pro-treaty forces. Was that really the catalyst for the savagery that followed? There was a situation in the summer of 1922 where the avenues towards compromise or dialogue had been exhausted on the Irish side. Um, There were those who hoped in the first half of 1922 that they could avoid civil war, that they could come up with some kind of a political solution or agreement between pro and anti-treaty sides that would avoid catastrophe. But events took on a dynamic of their own, particularly in June of of 1922. The assassination of Sir Henry Wilson, uh, an audacious killing on his doorstep in London. Of course, he was the former uh, chief of the Imperial Staff of the British Army, a military advisor to the Northern Ireland government. I mean, he was a hate figure uh, for for Irish Republicans. Uh, And after that killing in London, the British government effectively said to the provisional government, the pro-treaty side, that if you don't move now against the anti-treaty Republicans, we're going to do it for you. Uh, The way Winston Churchill had put it as Secretary of State for the Colonies, uh, the government must assert itself or perish and be replaced by some other form of control. So that British shadow is a part of the story. It's not just about what was going on internally between the pro and and anti-treaty sides. But that decision, once it's taken, Eamon, at the end of June 1922, to move against the four-course garrison, they've been there since April. It's been such a show of defiance by Rory O'Connor and his colleagues. And they're putting it up to the provisional government. Um, But once that decision is taken, and of course it's it's an attack that involves the assistance uh, of Britain and the use of uh, British armaments, uh, that begins, of course... A, a brutal civil war. And it's short and it's in many respects savage. But one of the points I would make as well is that it could have been a lot worse. You know, there are certain factors uh, that uh, generate a degree of restraint, uh, which seems counterintuitive to us because we think about the civil war and we shake our heads as Sean Lamas did. Yes. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't want to go there. There was a silence about uh, the scale uh, of the cruelty that was inflicted. And remember, Noel Amass, uh, his brother, you know, what a grisly ending. Even after the Civil War, he was taken up to the Dublin Mountains and he was mutilated. Yeah. Can you tell us actually what happened? Because it it, it, it struck me all the way through the book and reflecting on it as I did uh, afterwards, that, you know, the power of history to remind you uh, and to give you some perspective on where you actually are. I mean, Noel Amass was, uh, the circumstances are disputed, uh, and we don't know everything about it, but, you know, this was about vengeance, you know? Yes. Uh, it was, th- this is, uh, th- the impression you get, of course, is that the violence doesn't just end uh, in the spring of 1923. I mean, the Irish Civil War is short, but it fizzles out, and there are still these grisly reminders of the depth of the enmities and the hatreds, and Nola Mass is a victim uh, of that. It's a revenge killing Yes. Uh, he's taken up the Dublin mountain. His body is mutilated. Um, Sean Lamas was released from prison uh, to attend the funeral and then threw himself into kind of Sinn Féin and, and political activism. Yes. Um, but I think it's interesting that there is that silence. And even what he said uh, to Michael Mills at yes. the end of the 1960s, he never spoke about the Civil War in public. 
He gave a series of interviews uh, to the hotelier Dermot Ryan towards the end of his life in the late 1960s. And we have the transcript of those recordings now, but he always skirted around the Civil War. He wouldn't talk about it directly. He would mention it in passing in the context of, of what happened afterwards in politics, but he didn't want to talk. And I think that was a very common approach to the Civil War legacy. You don't talk about it, you compartmentalize it. And there are noble reasons, Eamon, sometimes for silences. You, yes. know? you don't want to reopen uh, the wounds. Yes. You don't want to pass on, perhaps, uh, the prejudices uh, to uh, the next generation. And for some as well, it's just too difficult because an awful lot of trauma is internalised. And this yes. is where we're getting, I think, a new understanding of the afterlife of the detritus of the Civil War and how people lived with themselves, those who survived, and the cruel lotteries that were in operation in relation to how people fared afterwards. What we would call today PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Um, it, like, there isn't a language for that or the same language that we have, but a lot of it was internalized. And I suppose part of what I'm trying to do is, is, is confront that. It is about acknowledging the scale of the violence and what we were prepared to do to each each other. Yes. Ireland at the same time was not part of the kind of culture of defeat after the First World War that led to uh, unbearable savagery uh, in other parts of the country. Like when you take the, the Finnish Civil War a couple of years previously in a country of similar size and population, 36,000 people were killed. Yeah, um, I noted that. I didn't no. even know there'd been a, <laughs> a civil war in Finland, but I noted the number. Yeah, and I mean, like that, we need to put it in that context. I mean, what happens in Ireland, it, you know, it's an Irish version of what's happening internationally. Winston Churchill famously dismissed what happened after the First World Wars, the Wars of the Pygmies. But four million people were killed yes. after the end of the First World War because there are disputed boundaries, there are ethnic hatreds that come to the surface. Uh, there's a new dispensation, the crumbling uh, of, of empire, and people are trying to forge new paths. And, and in the midst of that, they do terrible things to each other. So we have our version of that, and we have that British shadow uh, hanging over us. And what I'm seeking to do, I suppose, is try to understand the depths of the feelings, of the sincerity of the people involved, but also their hatreds. Um, yes. And it is partly about trying to bring the war back to the people who fought it, the men and women who were involved, there's no point in us lecturing them now on how they should have done things differently or should have done better. Yes. Um, it, it's about trying to understand what motivated them uh, and take them on their own terms, difficult as that is. Yes, one of the great revelations uh, for me in the book, and I imagine for many people, was the role of women um, and the treatment of women uh, and the subsequent suffering of so many women who couldn't get a pension, uh, who couldn't, but also the rape, uh, the uh, and the sort of euphemisms for rape that you itemize and that, that were used at the time. But th there's an extraordinary theme running through the book almost about women, uh, how uh, they suffered, and in the end. They were, you know, m many of them left. There's a story about a woman who emigrated to London, to Shepherd's Bush, uh, and what she endured and how she tried to find a way to get a pension. Um, There's a phrase, Eamon, that's used about that woman. Her name was Ellen Carroll. Yes. And she had fought becoming a man in Cork. And she ended up in a sorting office in Shepherd's Bush yes. in the middle of the Blitz of the Second World War because she couldn't find employment at home. She was described at the end of the Civil War as a complete wreck. 
And it's striking how often that phrase is used. I mean, she was a young woman. Uh, she had suffered from TB. She had suffered drenchings during uh, the Civil War because she was carrying dispatches and she was working out in the open and she was exposed. And we forget that kind of work sometimes. One of the difficulties for women is proving that they had so-called active service in order to qualify for a military pension. What did active service mean for women like her? And Nora Martin, under whose command she had served in Common Man, she writes to the pensions board at that stage and says, you cannot visualise the feelings of these women and the pressures that they were under because it, it's all men who are overseeing uh, this pensions process and there she is in london describing herself uh, and her abject circumstances and all she wants to do is to return to cork but when you go back to the civil war itself and you look at private sources take diary entries for example liam de Rochda was a cork uh, Sinn fein td pro treaty and he kept a very detailed diary which i looked at in cork and he refers to these women as not normal human beings with normal human mentality he described them as monomaniacs yes. that these this is a process of kind of the dehumanization yes. uh, of women you strip them uh, of, of their reason, you you present them as incorrigible and hysterical and incapable of rational thought. Uh, and it really dehumanizes them. But when you start to look at those pension applications and, and, and appreciate what they had endured, but also the climate that they're now facing in, 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 in subsequent decades, and many of them left. I was intrigued by the number of common man women from West Kerry, for yes. example, the part of the country that my grandfather is from. There were 257 common among members uh, in West Kerry during the War of Independence and Civil War. And 106 of them had left the country by the That's 1930s. It. It's as stark as that. And sometimes yeah. people deal with the post-Civil War dispensation by getting out of the country or feel they've no option uh, but to leave. Others remain and, and are facing, obviously, a, a climate that is very difficult for them. There's, there's a really striking description by Sheila Humphreys, who was another one of the common among activists, yes who said that by the end of the Civil War, we were flattened, we felt people didn't appreciate what we had done, and the tinted trappings of our fight were hanging like rags around us. Yes. It just encapsulates so much of the disillusionment. Yes, and Ellen Carroll, who went to, to, Shepherd's, uh, to Shepherd's Bush, uh, she writes to uh, Nora Martin, who had been her uh, leader in Common Amman, uh, and I quote her, from hour to hour, this is in London. You are only waiting for death. It is just hell on earth. I must say I am very unlucky and I think I am stuck over here for this. But I may thank the Irish government for that, she says sardonically. I could be home now if they granted me that service pension. I suppose all the well-off people of Cork got it. I don't care what happens to me now. It's so... Uh, sad, um, and it's also it's it, it it's a it calls into question, if you like, um, the revolutionary fervor of well uh, these people who claim to be um, heroic, but they are in the case of women uh, brutal, as you say, and point out, and there are many examples of it, uh, and it's remarkable and new. I suppose the lottery that's in operation, now you can take any revolution and say, well, what revolution actually lived up to its ideals and, and delivered on its promises? There's yeah. inevitably uh, a post-war, a post-conflict uh, disillusionment and a, a huge gap between yes. the reality uh, and, the, and the promises uh, that had been made. And it affects 
women in particular, um, when you begin to look, and these aren't household names, and, and, and this is what is so valuable, I suppose, about the pension archive. You know, this is about the rank and file and yes. what they experienced. I mean, Ellen understandably felt that others were doing much better, and some of them were. But when she refers to the others in Cork, you know, get, getting generous pensions, the reality, of course, is that most people who applied for pensions were not successful. Uh, we know uh, that by the early 1960s, 82,000 people had applied for military service pensions and only 18,000 of them were successful. So we have this kind of chronicle of disappointment. But the value of the archive is that all of the applications were kept and you get these people expressing their own feelings. Uh, there's great dignity and nobility in an awful lot of the letters, these beautiful yes. uh, handwritten letters, but also that sense of uh, desperation. Where do I fit in? Uh, where do I belong? I gave the best years of my life to this cause uh, and here I am now. Um, and that theme runs like a very sad stream uh, through this military per, uh, service pension archive. And you've got to acknowledge also that the reason they set up the military pensions process was uh, a, a noble reason. I mean, they were attempting to deal um, with, with those who had fallen on hard times. And this includes, of course, both sides of the Civil War divide, because you had thousands of National Army soldiers or pro-treaty soldiers who were demobilized. Yes. Uh, and we know that there was a letter sent to the Archbishop of, of, of Dublin in the 1920s uh, that pointed out that nearly 100 of those demobilized soldiers were living in the Phoenix Park. They yes. had no homes. Um, and it's just about the options that were and were not available to men and women afterwards. No, and men as well. I mean, th th there are um, sad, harrowing, rather, um, examples of men who were also looking for pension. But the the, the number of, of women and the, the degree to which they were um, treated so very badly is very, very striking. To go back to um, the um, the question of um, the treaty versus anti-treaty uh, people, uh, and in particular the book, it's not about Dev, you wrote another book about Dev, but Dev remains a kind of an elusive figure. Uh, to me, uh, Dermot, um, I can't get my head around him um, in terms of um, his beliefs. I mean, he talks, you have him quote, you quote him talking, he should have been a bishop or a cardinal or a priest. Or a Tory. Or a Tory, yes, exactly. And uh, one wonders, uh, was he right about himself? Well, it's, it, it, yeah, it's a very important point because um, I quote him writing to Mary McSweeney during the Civil yes. War. And Mary McSweeney, of course, spoke longer than anyone against the treaty. She was the keeper of the flame of her brother, Terence McSweeney, who had yes. died in hunger strike as Lord Mayor of Cork during the War of Independence. But she's a formidable politician and activist and, and suffragette in her own right. Um, and, and we need to consider her uh, in those terms. But de Valera wrote to her and said, I can't identify with your depth of republicanism. And yes. what de Valera believed was there was a third way. Um, you know, he said that, you know, I, I, I am driven by reason rather than faith, whereas for you, the Republic is a, is a spiritual entity. It's almost a religious thing. Yes. I'm a politician, but I don't have that sense of, of, of being a diehard. And he had miscalculated because he thought that he could forge a third way uh, between, you know, the, the, the treaty 
uh, and the complete rejection uh, of the treaty that he could come up with this idea of external association that would be we'd be associated with the Commonwealth but not part of it. Uh, and he kind of fell between two stools. And it's in- interesting what you say about him being elusive during this period, because he is in hiding for much of it. There's yeah. a degree of of hostility uh, towards him on the part of the sea green incorruptible uh, Republicans uh, who don't have much regard for him because they see themselves primarily as soldiers and they're quite contemptuous of politicians. Yes. But at the same time, he's far removed enough from the supporters of the treaty uh, not to be able to identify with them or them identify with him. And he describes himself at one stage as powerless to intervene as as looking at the civil war as though he was behind a pane of glass. Now, that's also self-serving. He made reckless speeches in the run-up to the civil war, uh, and he resorted to this idea um, that he knew better than the people themselves what was best for them. Uh, And he described himself at one stage when he meets Richard Mulcahy as, as a humble soldier, uh, which was also a nonsense. There was nothing humble ever uh, about Eamon de Valera, but no. it is the low point of his career, and he is at sea, and I, I've no doubt he's uh, distressed as well. And he does move very quickly uh, in in early 1923 to begin talking about the need to guide the anti-treaty Republicans back into politics. He recognises that there's no uh, political future uh, for him in, in anti-treaty Sinn Féin, and he begins to do something about that. But he was the man they could not forgive, And, you know, when you look at what happened subsequently, because he survived, um, his enemies saw him as somebody who put personal ambition above principle. And they never forgave him for it. Yes. Uh, And and that endured for decades. And you can see him even when he's corresponding as an old and nearly blind man in the 1960s. He keeps coming back to the Civil War and and to how history uh, would deliver a verdict on his activities, justifying not going to the treaty negotiations, justifying rejecting the, uh, the treaty and so on. So he does remain preoccupied with it because he knows he's vulnerable to the verdict of history. Uh, and most historians have been quite hostile uh, to his actions and, and his stance during this period, with much justification, I think. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, the way we are today, David, um, we're, we're entering a new era for sure. The two Civil War parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, are, um, they're wilting, um, uh, one quicker than the other, people would argue. Uh, but And there is a rise now uh, of the Republicans in the form of Sinn Féin, both sides of, of the border. We are, and it, again, I suppose great history, and this, what you've written, is great history. It does actually... Um, encourage us to ask the question, how formed were, were we by these events? Uh, or were we always like that? And will we always be like that? Well, I've often referred to the stability of stagnation. Yes. When you consider how quickly we recovered from the Civil War, we don't give enough attention to that. No, it's, a, it's consider, it is remarkable. Yeah. I mean, like what I've often felt about civil war politics um, is that there's a degree of, of, of stability. Irish democratic culture predated the civil war. There was that tradition yes. there before uh, the civil war, unlike in some of the other countries, uh, like I've mentioned, Finland and Estonia and Hungary and Latvia and, you know, places that were yes. engulfed. Uh, with such difficulties and, and, and violence, you know, we had a longer tradition uh, of democracy and we withstood some of the excesses and the pressures of the 1920s and the 1930s and our democracy endured. And that's very important. So we did have that stability. Uh, but we also became a remarkably centralised state because the state was born in the midst of civil war and there's a very strong attitude of, of the need for strong, firm government, almost authoritarian uh, government within, obviously, a democratic form. Yes. Um, and also a distrust of, of popular consultation and a determination to allow the church to step into the vacuum. The, the logic being that uh, whatever divides <laughs> us, Politically, we have one thing in common. 93% of these people in this state uh, are Catholic, and, and we will focus on that. And, and that generates its own particular dynamic. Uh, like, we often think about how powerful the Catholic Church became, but they were shaken by the events of the Civil War. Uh, they release uh, a yes. pastoral at one stage, you know, denouncing the degeneracy of Irish boys uh, and, and, and how this has happened. Um, and they're affected by the scale of the violence and they're shaken by it. So they do seek to bolster their position and the politicians allow them to do that. And then we had this situation that evolved where we had two parties that frequently reminded each other of their uh, civil war days. And yet, particularly by the early 1950s, you can see a politician like James Dillon getting so fed up with the rerun of the civil war uh, rounds. Yes. And he says in the Dáil in 1951, you know, what ideological differences, if words retain their meaning, divide any two deputies on either side yes. of this house. Would you stop what he called your codology, you know? Yes. And that was an interesting uh, intervention. But in a sense, that lack of ideological gulf between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, even though there were class elements and there were cultural differences, you know, broadly speaking, they were not divided in the same way as politics was no. uh, in other European countries. And that actually did serve stability. Yes. Uh, in the sense that, you know, they uh, they weren't lurching. We weren't lurching politically uh, from extreme to extreme. You know, we just... Yeah, I mean, this. the Spanish Civil War would be a good example yeah. uh, of those extremes. Let me ask you about... The, I'm uh, 
the the Schlevenism, the kind of jobbery, the cronyism, the sort of petty venal stuff about money that still, uh, you know, it, it was characteristic of Hawhey, of course, but in a smaller way, it still exists and has existed all the time. The the stuff you write here about the pension stuff and other things like that, where people were deprived of justice and they were hungry and tired. Did, did that element you get here of fumbling in the greasy till, uh, and it's still around the place, uh, was that a consequence of that sort of deprivation that woman Ellen Carroll, for example, experienced or others? I mean, or is my mind just perverse? Yeah, no, no. You mentioned hockey there. Like, I, I found it very interesting. I mean, we're all aware of of the scale of the splendor uh, of of Hahi's living and his surroundings. Isn't it fascinating to see how impoverished that family were as a direct result of the civil war? Yes, it very much is. I, I, it, because you know, Hahi's father essentially had a breakdown um, and then developed MS. Uh, as a young yes. man, um, and uh, they couldn't feed their family. And the, the letters that he sends to the pension board and his wife, Sarah, who was also yes. a Yaman uh, activist, they would break your heart. Um, and at one stage, he asks that question, you know, are my family, after all, myself and my uh, wife have sacrificed, are my family to be left uh, uh, as a charitable case, you know? Um, yeah, and it wasn't and- going to happen to Charlie. No, but you see, that's, that, that's what makes you wonder. And again, I, I don't want to try and psychoanalyze these people, you know, but you, you have to draw some kind of a link between that scale yes. of suffering and deprivation and then the desire to acquire um, and, and to move on in leaps and bounds. Now, Hahi was an extreme example of it. Uh, yes. I don't think he's representative. But I think what, what it magnifies is that sense of division between the haves and the have-nots. And I've been giving examples throughout this book of you know, say senior leaders on either side of the Civil War divide who got comfortable pensions, maybe up to 250 or 300 pounds a year, which would be the equivalent of 30 or 40 grand today, just as a pension on top of other things. And then you had uh, individuals who were bereft, uh, you know, parents who had lost uh, young men on on either side or or women who were left with 40 or 50 pounds as a gratuity, not even a pension. Um, And then those scrambling just to, to stay above uh, subsistence level, you know. Uh, so you do get that uh, cynicism, I think, developing about the idea that some people have done very well out of this, that there isn't yes. fairness in this, and that therefore people are are more likely to cut corners uh, if they can. There certainly uh, is an element of that. But it's important to remember that the vast majority of, of pensions that were awarded were on the lower scale. Pensions were graded from A to E. Yes. And women could only qualify for D or E grade because they were deemed to be an auxiliary force, as common amount yes. formerly was in relation to the IRA. So you're talking really, Eamon, about some people uh, getting pensions of between 18 and £22 a year. Yes. So just a couple of thousand euro uh, in, in today's terms. So most people are, are scrambling for those shillings. Um, and sometimes, you know, the Department of, of Finance, as is its want <laughs> everywhere, yes. can just be so bloody mean. Uh, yes. that if you take one of the most famous um, episodes of the Civil War, the Nocknagoshal and Ballyseedy uh, episodes in, in Kerry, the horrors of Kerry in yes. the spring of 1923, uh, Edward Stapleton, 
was killed at Nochnagoshal. Uh, this was a trap that was set by the anti-treaty IRA and five National Army soldiers were blown to pieces and Edward Stapleton was one of yes. them. But he had a wife in Dublin and the pension files bring you back to the tenements in Dublin and Gloucester yes. Street where she was living uh, and she was also living with uh, his widowed mother. Um, and there's further tragedy because one of the children dies. There were two kids. Edward Stapleton was a father to two kids. Uh, and the Department of Finance recoups pound seventeen shillings for the month um, after the child had died because yes. that money had already been paid over. And there are times like that when you're looking at the cold, cruel yes. bureaucracy. Yes. Uh, but again, you know, th- that sense of, you know, if they're going to exercise uh, that level of, of stringency, well, then is there any way we can get around that? You know, you can see how, how that dynamic yeah, could the work. the nod and the wink. Yeah, uh, but it's largely of, born of, of, of desperation. Yes, and then there course. are those at the other level, I suppose, who do feel entitled, titled. Yes who yeah. feel that they are deserving of a particular treatment because of what they did or because they're obsessed with status. Yes. And I would emphasize that there are a lot of people involved in the pensions process and applicants. They're not looking or interested particularly in money. They want status. They want their sacrifices and their service to be recognized. Uh, they want it officially acknowledged that they did devote uh, this period of their life, yeah. and they did devote this sacrifice. But what you often get in a lot of the applications are multiple changes of address. They can't settle either for financial reasons or for mental reasons. Like I looked in particular at George Lennon, who was a teenage uh, IRA member yes. in Waterford. Uh, and at the outbreak of the Civil War, he's still a very young man. But again, he has a breakdown. And you can trace his subsequent life because he lived to the age of 90. He eventually yeah. ends up practice, practicing Zen Buddhism in, in yes. New York in the 1960s. <laughs> He's still trying to find some peace, but there yes. are 10 changes of address uh, over the course of his uh, pension application. He just couldn't settle. He couldn't hold down a job. And he just had a little aside in his application about 1922 um, when the Civil War broke out and he couldn't uh, stomach any more of it. He said, none of us were really sure where we were going to next. Yes. And that proved to be true in, in, in all sorts of different ways. But we also have to acknowledge those who opted out. And I give the example of the GPO garrison in 1916. There were 572 people, Eamon, in the yeah. GPO garrison in 1916, not the 50,000 who later claimed uh, they had been there. <laughs> yeah. But of that 572, 41% of them were neutral during the Civil really? War. So there wow. were many who decided, uh, not that they had lost their political sentiment or the depth of their feeling, but they didn't feel it was worth a civil war yes. or they didn't want to be fighting against their own people. Yes. Uh, and we have to acknowledge that strain of thinking as well. That does also serve ultimately the recovery. Yes, indeed. It's a fascinating book. I urge people to read it and particularly coming up to the holiday period. It's a real book you can get lost in, learn an awful lot. Very, very thought provoking as well. Um, and uh, it's published uh, by Profile Books, the author, of course, uh, Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern History at UCD. Congratulations. It's a massive piece of scholarship, but it's it's easy reading uh, and it's horrific reading, and it raises all kinds of thoughts, at least it did in my mind. So we're very grateful to you, Dermot, for joining us on The Stand. The book is called Between Two Hells, and it's a very um, welcome addition uh, to uh, the writings about uh, this country and its as yet 
undecided destiny, perhaps, David. Thanks a million, Eamon. A pleasure to talk to you. And I like how philosophical you're getting as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Uh, thanks to David. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.